Well, good morning. Uh, great to be with you, and uh, so glad uh, you've joined us, whether in person or uh, online. So grateful to be able to come together uh, in this way uh, to worship uh, each Sunday morning. Uh, and today we're uh, starting a new series of messages that I'm very excited about. Uh, over the next few months, we're uh, going to be looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is this uh, complicated, sprawling uh, mass of a book. It's glorious, it's rich, it's beautiful, and it's tricky. And it's tricky in a number of, of different ways. And so we're going to give uh, some serious time this fall to, to look at the book in a bit of detail and try to figure out uh, what it's about and what God is saying to us uh, through, through it. And so if you do have a Bible, I uh, would invite you to please turn to Revelation uh, chapter 1 or certainly follow along uh, with your worship guide at least. But Revelation uh, chapter 1. Revelation is difficult. Uh, if you're relatively new to Christianity, uh, you may find it hard. Uh, but actually, there are those even here that have been Christians for 50 years uh, who find Re Revelation hard as well. And it's hard um, for a number of reasons, which I want to just touch on uh, for a few moments before we turn to read it, because I ho hope it'll help set the scene for uh, the whole series. But Revelation can be tricky mainly because it's a, it represents a kind of writing that people don't use anymore. That's the issue. Revelation it's, is what's called an apocalypse. It's, it's an apocalyptic piece of writing. And that is a kind of literature that the Jewish people in this period of time used that almost nobody ever since has used. People today do not write apocalypses. And the only time they read them is when they're studying ancient texts like this one. And that makes it difficult to read because we're not familiar with the kind of writing that's being used. Uh, sometimes a culture will use a form of writing that other cu cultures don't use. Okay, so to give an example that you might not have thought of before, uh, the novel, which would be a very common in writing today. Every bookstore that you go into has hundreds of novels in it. Most of us have, have read a novel or two or, or many uh, at some point in our lives. Uh, but the novel is rel a relatively new kind of writing. Uh, people in Shakespeare's day didn't write novels. Uh, people a 1,000 years ago, 2,000, 3,000 years ago didn't write novels. They wrote poems and plays. They, they didn't write fictional prose, uh, stories about people who didn't exist and tell stories as if they did. That, that wasn't something that people did. So if you showed a novel to an ancient person, they would be confused by it. And in some ways, that's what happens to us when we read Revelation. We're dealing with a kind of writing that people nowadays don't use. And that means that there are a lot of things about it that we, we find a bit inaccessible. And so, for instance, uh, apocalyptic writings are full of symbols. And if you don't know that and you take the symbols and you then take them literally, you'll really under, misunderstand the book because you might not even, uh, and you might not even realize you were. 
you might, you might read it thinking, I'm reading this correctly, and then you would form this, and some Christians do this with Revelation, this complicated timeline of, of all the who's going to do this, and, and when, and, and what, and all of the political powers, what they're going to do, and there's going to be people, you know, they're going to have horns and reign for this many years, and all of that stuff. And you, and, and you end up with a terrible tangle misunderstanding the book because the symbols are not the kind of symbols that, that you would use. And you might not even realize that they are symbols. And you end up, if you're not careful, you end up with some of the stuff that you see on Christian television or in the left behind stories or movies where people become quite fearful about the nature of the future because they read Revelation too literally. And, and they thought they were doing it in terms of being faithful to God. And, and it's motivated by a good heart. But often it, it, it just misunderstands the way that this kind of writing is supposed to be read. And as a result, you can end up in all sorts of confusion. But, but that's not how the literature works. You've got to understand what the symbols mean. You've got to do the historical work of figuring out how this writing works and therefore what it means to the original readers. And, and faced with confusion like that, a lot of Christians, what they do is they say this. They say, I'm not going to even read it. It's too hard. It's too complicated. It's too confusing. Well, that is not what we're going to do. That's not what we're going to do. Avoiding revelation out of fear of what it might mean is a terrible idea. Uh, because if you do that, you cede to the, the field, to the oddballs. The, the only people that are going to be able to tell me about revelation are the people who are obsessed with the details in revelation. But the, the rest of us are just going to ignore it. That is a terrible strategy. You let the monkeys take over the zoo. What we need is to be able to read Revelation clearly, mindful of the symbols and of the rest of Scripture, because avoiding books that you're scared of is a terrible idea. And you also, by the way, play right into the devil's hand if you do that. One, uh, one Bible teacher says, Satan has managed to do something clever in the church. He's managed to stop Christians reading the two big bits of Scripture in which the devil is clearly under the feet of Jesus. He stopped people reading the beginning of Genesis because they're all worried about origins and evolution. And he stopped people reading Revelation, the end of the story, because they're worried about getting in a tangle about dra you know, dragons and beasts and, and harlots or, 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 or whatever. And as a result, people don't read the passages of Scripture where the victorious Christian life is most clearly taught and the devil is most clearly under the feet of Jesus. And as we'll see in a moment, Revelation is the one book in the Bible that pronounces a blessing for everyone who reads it and everyone who hears it. And so we're going to do just that this morning. We are going to, to read Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of, called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and the, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of seven churches, and the seven lampstands stands are the seven churches. Amen. The first four verses of Revelation are crucial in helping us understand uh, the whole of the book. Uh, if we get clear up front on what revelation is and how it works then we won't get flustered when when later on we meet beasts and flying locusts scorpions and other weird flora and fauna and there will be plenty of that uh, we'll get to that later on in this uh, series but we've got to understand first off what revelation is how it works what kind of writing it is 
And John actually introduces us to four things that Revelation is in the opening few verses. First of all, he tells us Revelation is an apocalypse. A revelation of Jesus Christ. The word apocalypsis is just the Greek word for revelation. This book is an unveiling. It's a disclosure. It's an unmasking of what is really going on behind the scenes. That's what the word apocalypse means. A revelation, peeling back the curtain so that you can see what's going on backstage. And so the imagery really is that You're looking at what's taking place on the stage, which is the events of history, powers rising and falling, people attacking the church, whatever it may be. But Revelation peels back the curtain and shows you what's going on behind the stage. See, actually, you can see the worldly empires, but behind that are spiritual forces and powers at work. And, and there are spiritual dynamics at work behind everything you see in the natural world. And, and they need to be unmasked or unveiled with the, the curtain pulled back so that you can see them for what they really are. Unmasking is the thing that happens at the end of an episode of Scooby-Doo. Uh, where the guy, and it's always, you know, some sinister uh, caretaker figure who's been milling around, and he actually turns out to be the monster. He's wearing this big mask, and at the end, they, they pull the mask off, and everyone, you know, everyone else goes, aha, and sees the figure and goes, it's you. Well, Revelation is doing that. It's going, aha, it's taking the mask off so that we can see what's really going on. Oh, I thought you were just an emperor, but now I can see the spiritual forces at work behind you. You have been unveiled. You have been apocalypted. It's an an x-ray, not a crystal ball, right? It cuts through so that you can see the structure of what's really going on. It's not a crystal ball to gaze at and guess about the future. It's a way of, of cutting through the power so that we can see the way they really are. Eugene Peterson, a writer known to some of you, he he pictures it like a a stew pot on a stove. He, He says it's like coming into the kitchen and you can smell this incredible aroma of all of the, you know, something's bubbling away, something's generating this wonderful rich smell, onion, garlic, meat, uh, you know, what's all in there. And, and, and someone comes and lifts the lid off the stew pot and everyone peers in and, and can sees, see what's causing the, the, the smell. And he says, apocalypse, revelation. You open the lid and you can see inside. So as we read Revelation, we should expect it to expose the spiritual powers that are at work behind the scenes. Because Revelation is an apocalypse. Verse 1. Revelation is also a witness. Verse 2. John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now today, we use the word testimony to to refer to the way that we got converted. That's a common way of, of using the word. But this word doesn't really mean that in quite that way. This word is actually the word from which we get our word, martyr. And it's a, and it's a word that refers more to uh, kind of like a legal testimony. I am witnessing, testifying 
in, my, in, in public to my belief that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that I follow him, even if witnessing to that gets me killed. That's what the word witness means in, in that context. That's what testimony is in this book. So a, so a testimony isn't just a conversion story. It's actually a proclamation that you stand or fall and are prepared to die for the truth of who Jesus is. And John says, revelation is that. I solemnly do uh, declare, so help me God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in exile because I witnessed to Jesus and they came for me. And this book is a witness, it's a testimony to the reality of Jesus. So it's an apocalypse, it's a witness. Thirdly, it's a prophecy. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Revelation is a word from God. It's not some human imaginary thing. It is a word from God in which God speaks a word of judgment and blessing and hope to cut through to and expose the way things truly are. It's not a work of human imagination. It's, it's, it's a prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And so we're going to read a lot of this book allowed in the course of this series because the bible commands a blessing on us when we do that and when we hear it understand there is a gift of god in hearing the prophetic word the word from the throne of god to cut through all of the nonsense you see in the world and to expose what's really going on and actually this prophecy in particular is structured around four visions which john has and we'll see them as we go along four different times he says i was in the spirit and then he sees something he's in the spirit and he sees Jesus, which is what this is this morning, today what we're looking at. He's in the spirit and he sees the throne of God. And then later on, he sees the harlot who we'll meet later. And then finally, the bride. And those four visions, if you like, provide the shape for the whole book of Revelation for us. So John says, it's an apocalypse it's a witness, it's a prophecy, and finally, it's a letter. It's a letter. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Revelation's a letter, and it's written to specific congregations in what we would now call Turkey. It wasn't called that then, but they were first century communities of believers in Asia Minor, and John is writing a letter to them. And that is very, very helpful when it comes to interpret, interpreting the whole book because it means that although the, the book is written for us, it was not written to us. I mean, that's actually true of the whole Bible if you think about it. The book is written for us to read, but it wasn't written to me. It wasn't written to a, a 21st century person with my assumptions. It was written to a 1st century person facing uh, persecution from probably a combination of Romans and Jews. And in order to strengthen them in the, them in the midst of, of persecution, it uses a lot of language and symbols and imagery and scripture that they would understand even if I don't. Now that helps me because 
That, it means that the symbols in Revelation have to make sense to a first century person. And if they don't, I'm reading them wrong. And that means if somebody tells you that the beast is the Pope, you can say, no, he isn't. Because that reading of Revelation would not have, have meant anything to a first century person because they didn't have a Pope. If someone says, you know, actually the beast is Mao Zedong or, or actually no, the beast is Donald Trump or even the beast is Mike Autry, you say, no, he's not. And I know he isn't because there's no way that a first century reader could have known that that's what it meant. And that really helps us because that means we've, we've always got like a smell test we can do. Am I reading this correctly would it have made sense to you know would it have made sense in a letter to a specific church of, of people in the first century and if the answer is no then we haven't got the whole picture so revelation is an apocalypse it's a witness it's a prophecy and it's a letter and it's important to give that by way of of introductions of the whole series because if we know those things, it will protect us from getting into the weeds later on. And so Revelation, in that sense, unveils spiritual realities behind the world and encourages Christians who are suffering persecution with a message of judgment and hope and says, stand firm, witness to Jesus, even though they're coming for you because in the end, good things are going to come out of this tribulation you're in. And as I just mentioned, it's made up of four visions. And, and this is where we need to, we need to turn to verse 12 because the first vision gloriously is a vision of Jesus. The, the book as, as a whole is, I was in the spirit and I saw, and he sees four things. Jesus, the throne of God, and then much later on, the harlot, and then the bride. And the first vision is of Jesus. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The seven lampstands, we're going to find out in a moment, are the seven churches. So John, having heard this voice, declaring that he's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, looks around to see who's speaking. And when he first turns, he doesn't see a speaker. He sees lampstands, which represent the church. And then as he's looking at these different church lampstands, in the midst of them, he sees Jesus. He sees one like, who's like the son of man. And then he gives this glorious description. And I think there's something interesting there, that that, that John turns and he actually sees the church before he sees the Savior. You know what? Most people do. Even to this day, most people do. Most people don't meet Jesus until they've previously met the church. Most people's window into the reality of Jesus Christ is believing communities of Christians witnessing to his death and resurrection. That's what often people see first. John had that. I find that encouraging. I don't feel 
like a perfect or a very good representation of all of the of the kind of person Jesus is. I'm I'm painfully aware of the differences between me and Jesus, but it is strangely encouraging to me that even in the Bible, John can look and he sees the church even before he sees Jesus standing in the midst of the church. That's beautifully encouraging to me and challenging in its own way as well. Well, in the midst of all of these churches is one like a son of man, a a human being with human appearance, and he's described in seven ways. And as we go, as we get into the book, we'll realize that there are a whole lot of of sevens uh, in this book, and they're almost all, all significant, but we're given seven features of him as this sort of vision pans down from his head to his feet and then back up again. The hairs of his head were white like wool. Then it just goes, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his hands, his mouth, and his face. Just allow yourself to picture Jesus. You might not even be a, a, a Christian today. This is one of the pictures of Jesus you probably don't uh, very often see depicted in Christian art or in, in, in kids' Bibles or whatever. This is a picture of Jesus that would be too frightening to put in a kid's Bible. The hair of his head, the hairs of his head were white, like white, like white wool, like snow. Verse 14. White is actually a very significant color in Revelation. It's the color that comes when all of the other colors come together. It's a beautiful symbol in the sense of fullness as well as purity in the Bible. And it's what you see when all of the colors come together. And here Jesus, as he is first introduced, he has hair that's white like, white like wool, like snow. And that picture is particularly fascinating because in the book of Daniel, which is written a long, long time before this, 500 plus years before this, there's a scene where the ancient of days... Uh, who's described with hair white like wool and white like snow meets the Son of Man. And what's amazing about this scene is that the Son of Man has somehow become the one who has hair that is white like wool and white like snow. So in in a sense, in Daniel's picture, there's a picture of, in my language, God the Father and God the Son. And here in Revelation, the two of them are being brought together so that Jesus is one like the Son of Man who has hair that's white like wool and white like sun. He's in that sense, represents both the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. He is both human and the Eternal One, as we're going to see in a moment. Second description, the hairs of his head, and then we get his eyes were like a flame of fire, verse 14. Fire in the Bible means a lot of things. It often means holiness. It often means the burning purity and otherness and distinctiveness and separateness and holiness of Almighty God. And Jesus has fiery eyes of burning splendor. When you try and look Jesus in the eyes, you see flames coming out. That's the picture that John is using to describe the utter holiness, the utter purity, the utter utterness of this God-man that John is standing in front of. And then we read, his feet were like burners bronze refined in a f- furnace. Verse 15, the feet of Jesus are on fire. They are glowing. 
They are refined in the fire. I don't know if this is right, but I sometimes wonder if the fact is that because the church is because the church is like the hands and feet of Jesus, do his feet burn in fire because we, his people, also burn when we face the fires of persecution and glow all the brighter when we are tested. That's what burnished bronze is. Something that through being purified and tested, it ends up glowing the brighter. And I, and I wonder if, if one of the reasons why his feet are, are burnished bronze is because in some ways so are we. I remember hearing someone say uh, a few years ago, if anyone ever says we are the hands and feet of Jesus, just remember what happened to Jesus' hands and feet. It's powerful to, to think Jesus is our forerunner and our representative and that we take our response to the testing of, of life and opposition and persecution in the same way that he did. Fourth, his voice was like the roar of many waters. It, it, isn't it amazing to think the, the voice of Jesus is like the roar of Victoria Falls or of Niagara Falls, of all of these giant thundering waterfalls that as he speaks, it feels like the whole ground is shaking and you think, I'm going to get swallowed up by this noise. And as he speaks, the incredible intensity and thunder of the thunder and volume comes out. It inspires awe. And people, when they see great waterfalls, often they don't even have to, to look at them to be inspired by the awe. Sometimes there's just the, 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 on the hearing of the thunderous roar, the noise is enough to make them think, whoa. When Jesus speaks, this is why we take the word of God seriously, isn't it? When Jesus speaks, it inspires awe. The prophet Isaiah talked about people who tremble at the words of God. When Jesus speaks, it makes people fall down in wonder at what he says, at the glory of the one saying it. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And we find out later that the seven stars are the seven messengers of the churches. They're held in the hand of Jesus. Verse 16 also, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Think that one through. Emperors in worldly terms have messages in their mouths and swords in their hands. Jesus has messages in his hands and a sword in his mouth. Have you ever thought about that? What a bizarre contrast that is jesus has messages in his hands where you'd expect a sword and he has a sword in his mouth where you would expect a message because his word is the only weapon that he needs he doesn't need to rule like the kingdom of the earth he doesn't need to rule with the sword or the tank or the nuclear bomb jesus rules through his word his word coming out of his mouth is the sword it, 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 he doesn't come simply to you know, strike down and smite some everybody. He, he, he comes with the word of God and that word, the word that brings judgment and blessing and hope and restoration with the gospel of good news for all people. His word is the only weapon he needs. And friends, the word, his word is the only weapon that we need. It can cut through anything. The sword of the word of God being spoken by the one with a mighty voice, like, uh, with a, a voice like mighty waters. 
And then John concludes the seventh full description by saying, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can't even look at the sun shining in full strength. You catch yourself doing it because you're looking, you know, at an eclipse or whatever. You put on those, you know, those weird glasses and then you look. But if you don't have those on and you look at the sun shining in its full strength, you go blind. The glory of Jesus is blindingly hot. It's awe-inspiring. It's totally overwhelming. If you were to see him fully revealed as he is, you would not know what to do with yourself. Jesus, the glory of the one, of the one like a son of man. And John sees this all pretty much at once. And I wonder if you did, what would you do? If you encountered the Son of Man with a voice like Niagara and his feet and his eyes on fire and his face shining like the midday sun, how would you respond? Would you sing a song? Would you give him a high five and just say, hey, Jesus, my homeboy? Would you ask him a, a questions? Ah, there are a few things I wanted to ask you. Would you tell him, all the things that you think he got wrong, I'm going to have words with God about that when I meet him. I suspect that this, if this actually happened to me or to you on our way home today, you would respond exactly as John did. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, every so often I, I will hear people uh, say something like, you know, when I meet Jesus, I've got some questions I'm going to ask him. And I want to say, friend, his feet are on fire. When you meet Jesus, you are not going to be talking about whatever weird and wonderful questions you might have or any grievance you feel you, you shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened to you. You are going to bow before him in wonder and adoration. You are going to say, I can't even look at him. You will, be, you will fall at his feet as though dead. But it strikes me sometimes, we think, don't we, that we will come to Jesus with our, with our issues, and actually we will come to Jesus on our faces in worship and wonder at the splendor of, of the sevenfold Son of Man. And now look at what happens next. When we come face down like John at his feet as though dead, look what, John, what Jesus does next. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is what is so glorious about Jesus. He doesn't leave us groveling in the dust, where by all accounts I deserve to be. He doesn't leave me there. He puts his right hand on John, and on us, the right hand that holds the stars, and he puts his right hand on us, and he says to John, and to me and to you, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You have absolutely nothing to fear. I am the first, I am the last, I am the living one. I have been through death, and I will live forever. 
and I have the keys of the grave in my pocket. Death in Hades, I've got the keys. I just let anybody out anytime I want. You have nothing to be afraid of. Nobody can enter the grave unless I say so. And once I have unlocked the grave, nobody can keep you staying there if I've let you out. So no matter what kind of trials you're facing, and in this book there will be plenty, and in your life and in mine there will be plenty, you have nothing to be afraid of. Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one who died, and I've got the keys of death itself. You've got nothing to be scared of. If you fear Jesus, you don't have to fear anybody else. And in that sense, that is the message of the whole book of Revelation. Fear not. Jesus is alive. No matter what comes, fear not. The living one who died is alive forevermore. And so if we read the book of Revelation and we end up scared and worried and anxious about the future, we know we're doing it wrong. Jesus has died. He is alive forevermore. And he holds the keys of the grave. So we can take courage. We can be bold not in our strength and conviction or in our circumstances, but in a Jesus and a Savior with a waterfall voice and flaming feet. Jesus has been apocalypsed. He's been unveiled. Let's praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful, kind of terrifying, and yet gloriously merciful Lord Jesus. We thank you for the living one who died. We thank you for the Son of Man who's eyes are flaming fire. We thank you for the one with a voice like the sound of many waters, whose feet are burnished bronze. We thank you for the sword that is the word of God coming out of his mouth. We thank you that he is the one to whom we come, and he is the one who says to us, you don't need to be afraid. We praise you for Jesus. We we pray that you would open our lives and our hearts and our minds to see the glorious nature of the Lord Jesus as we study this book. And to stand strong in whatever trials come our way, knowing that in him we have nothing to fear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.